Well, greetings. Welcome to The Dividing Line. It is a the first cool day of the fall in Phoenix, Arizona. Well, no, yesterday was, but the first cool day with The Dividing Line. So, yes, I'm excited to be here, and I'm excited when the highs do not reach 70 degrees in Phoenix after, in the first 290 days of 2020, the high temperature is 100 degrees or above for 145 of those days. <laughs> Half of them. Since New Year's Day. Yes. So, yeah, it's going to warm back up a little bit, but it's not going to make it back to 90. And so, hey, it's dry as a bone. And, you know, 85 and dry is, is gorgeous. And so we're, we're happy. Hey, just a uh, not a programming note, but just I only found out. I, I didn't see this mentioned anywhere. If I hadn't been looking at another, another debate we're going to be talking about in a moment, I wouldn't have known about this. But coming up in two hours from now... Uh, on the Gospel Truth YouTube page, uh, Doug Wilson is going to be debating Dr. Kurt Jaros, um, Does God Decree All Evil? And uh, so I brought my, uh, I brought my earphones. Uh, we're not going to go two hours, but uh, I'm going to get fired up on the phone and listen to it while driving home. And, um, well, it doesn't take that long to get home. <laughs> uh, but uh, it should be very, very, very interesting. I'm looking forward to hearing that because that is a key issue, the issue of the sovereignty of God. Uh, who determines the shape of time? That really, when you think about it, that really ends up determining what you're going to believe about everything else. If you believe that um, that God does not have a decree, uh, then you're, the best you can have is a vague general outline of history that's going to go a lot of different ways depending upon human autonomy and things like that, all the way into process theology, open theism, all those other th- messes that are out there. And uh, but that is the tendency of man. That I would say to you, the default view of the world that's going to come from man is going to be a man-centered one, where man determines these things. Human autonomy. Um, it is a act of grace that causes a man to recognize that he is neither autonomous. He did not. He is not autonomous. He did not bring his, himself into existence. And that there is something far greater than simply the bumbling result of the human species uh, that is being accomplished in this world. And uh, that really is the issue. And obviously, I think the biblical answer to that is very, very plain. But the prejudice and the bias of human experience often results in people um, refusing to accept that biblical reality, despite <laughs> the very clear statements of Scripture um, on the subject, you know, the one who works all things after the counsel of his will. So, sort of sort of straightforward, um, but there is always a way. Folks, there is always a way around anything if your heart is not truly dedicated to being subjected uh, fully to the truth of God. There's always a way around anything. If you want to defend anything, you can, you can find a way to do it. And uh, so... Uh, all right, so on the program today, a lot of things. Um, I guess I'll go ahead and do this. I wasn't going to do this, but someone posted, a, again, it's one of those tweets before the program things. They weren't aiming at me, so it, that's not the issue. But um, 
it just hit because uh, I guess this wasn't all that uh, long ago. Uh, but uh, someone known to a number of people in the um, um, internets <laughs> uh, by the name of Kyle James Howard has uh, has tweeted yet once again. And I just want to look at this as a overarching, can anything not be blamed on this example? Um, he says, when we think about sexual abuse and racial trauma, we never think about all the black boys who had older uncles or cousins perpetuate. Now, ready for this? Now, if you're if you're a if you're a black boy, um, what then are your older uncles and cousins? Are are, are what? Because he used the term black boys. So what what is a black boy's older uncles or cousins? They are black, right? Okay, so um, when we think about sexual abuse, race, trauma, we never think about all the black boys who had older uncles or cousins perpetuate white supremacy's young buck dynamic by pressuring them to have sex, usually with older women, as soon as they hit puberty. So, evidently there is a young buck dynamic in the black community, and I don't think I... Did I play it? I don't know if I played it, but I I made reference to a program about, what, five, four or five months ago, where a black woman was interviewing, had in the audience these all these young black men, less than 30 years of age, one of which had... What was it? 26 children by 18 different women, I think. Something like that. All of them had multiple, multiple, multiple children by multiple, multiple, multiple women. And they were talking about this as being a part of black culture. But who knew it was actually due to white supremacy? Because that's what it says. They're perpetuating white supremacy's young buck dynamic. What can't be blamed on white supremacy now? What isn't blamed on white supremacy? Everything. I've seen climate change blamed on white supremacy. Every economic issue, climate change, war, and even the young buck dynamic in the black community. It's all white supremacy. So can we just stop using the phrase white supremacy and just call it the devil? How about that? Because... The word doesn't, the phrase doesn't mean anything anymore. You're just talking about evil, which is why it makes you wonder there are these groups, um, a lot of black Hebrew Israelites, and um, of course, Farrakhan and his entire group. What has their thing been all along? Whites or demons? Whites or demons? So it's coming full circle. The woke people are just getting to the same place. They just went, you know, through a different way to get there. Um, and you do realize that what Kyle James Howard says there means that that black people, the way he's presenting it, black people have absolutely no will or capacity for self-governance at all. At all. They're just victims. They're just victims. They're the oppressed and so they're just victims. That's all there is to it. No responsibility. It's astonishing. It's astonishing to me that people can so 
dive headfirst into this kind of thing that they don't realize what they're actually end up saying when they get done. It's it's amazing. But there's good old Kyle James Howard at it uh, again. A video is making the rounds that I first saw uh, yesterday. And um, uh, that's not the one I wanted. I wanted that one right there. And it is astonishing. Now, this is from the World Economic Forum. You need to understand, the World Economic Forum has been around for quite some time. The World Economic Forum has been primarily ignored by most people as pinheaded, leftist um, uh, scholars and theorists and... You know, they get together at Davos and do their thing, and yeah, really, well, actually, they are the biggest, they are the largest enemies you've ever had. They they are behind what is happening to you now. If you have lost your job, uh, if you've lost your business, if you've lost your freedom, um, the World Economic Forum wanted all of that to happen, was waiting for a trigger, waiting for something to use to bring all that about because they want you dependent upon the government. They want you living in a one-room apartment uh, without the ability to travel, eating vegan, um, with basically no future and no purpose in your life, and not getting married and not having children so that the overall population can be drastically reduced over time. Uh, That's what the World Economic Forum is about. That's that's who they are, and people didn't take them overly seriously until now when they are actually starting to accomplish their goals. They put out a video with you know, nice little music in the background and making everybody look happy and smiley, but I want you to think about what they're saying. These are eight predictions for the world in 2030, but... This isn't just simply a matter of predictions. This is where we see trends going. This is what they want. This is what they're working toward. This is, this is what the Great Reset is all about. And they're, they're, they're throwing that out there. I've, I've, I've mentioned, a friend of mine, Michael Fallon, was telling me about the Great Reset years ago. And it sounded crazy. Uh, because there were so many things that had to happen. So much had to, so much had to happen to to make any of this make any sense. Why would anyone voluntarily give up their national sovereignty? I mean, you you and your ancestors, your families have worked to build this nation, and even people in small, really poor, struggling nations still have a tremendous amount of pride in their nation. I mean, that's what isn't that what the Olympics are all about? I mean, you're you're cheering for oh, we canceled them, didn't we? <laughs> we did, we did, didn't have to, but we did. We canceled them because no, because these people do not want you looking up the number of gold medals that your country has won because they don't want. I remember it was only what two years ago when I started hearing nationalist being used as a negative pejorative term i i remember i remember when bruce jenner was bruce jenner and we were so proud of the decathlon wins and 
Um, Mark Spitz. Oh, wow. You know, uh, and and the miracle, uh, the, the U.S. hockey team. Back when we were still putting amateurs up against all the professionals from, from the Eastern Bloc countries, our amateurs won the gold in hockey. Remember? Uh, miracle on ice, yeah. And so that kind of thing, you know, the dream team, you know, when we finally started using our professionals and wiped their bales off the planet, um, you know, but you see, that, that fosters nationalism and borders, and these people don't want that. Uh, they want a global socialist technocracy where a small number of global elites live in the level of luxury you would not even be able to. Remember, what was the um, what was that movie uh, with the uh, where all the elites lived up on a space station, um, and then all the other bad pe- all the bad people lived on Earth and just died horrible deaths and and stuff like that. Um, what was the name of that one? Anyway. Saw it again recently. Uh, that's sort of where these people are um, in what they're in what they're going to be doing. As with all of socialism, uh, what you what you do is is you spread poverty equally. <laughs> that's what that socialism does is you spread the poverty out equally. But when you get people to vote into it, of course, you advertise it differently. And. I, uh, I did a really long ride yesterday because it finally cooled off, and I had been waiting to do this ride for about a 102-mile ride out to Bartlett Lake and back. I've uh, been waiting to do it f- literally for months and finally got a chance to do it. And so one of the things I listened to uh, was Rod Dreher's book, Live Not by Lies. Live Not by Lies, which is a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn right before he was kicked out of Russia. Uh, this was a part of his final message to the Russian people, Live Not by Lies which was a a reference to the fact that under communism, you had to learn to live by lying. Everybody knew that Pravda, which means the truth, Pravda, the the news agency, everything it said was a lie. Everybody knew it. You, You could basically read it in Pravda and go, oh, the opposite of that is true. Everybody knew it. That's where we are now. That's what CNN is. That's what MSNBC is. And that's what this, when, when, when they started to promote this stuff amongst these nations, the promise of all the young intellectuals was equality and workers of the world unite and everyone's going to have all their needs met. And the result was everyone shared the same level of poverty. It's not a joke that you could, everybody under the Soviet Union had plenty of money. There's just nothing to buy. And so if you wanted a car, you ordered a car, and you'd get the car about two and a half years later. And it was a hunk of junk, but but you didn't have to worry about paying for it because there's plenty of money. There just wasn't anything to buy because socialism doesn't work. As they say, you, you vote your way in on the basis of lies, and then you shoot your way out on the basis of the truth. That's how it's been. And for quite some time, I've been noticing a lot of folks who lived under the communist scheme. They have to be older folks now. Well, not super older, but older. They're in the older generation. 
have been saying, uh, what we're seeing in the United States, we've seen before. People losing their jobs, uh, totalitarian thought, being punished for your how you think about things, how you speak about things. If you actually want to say what you really need to say, you sort of have to lower your voice. We all know right now we could have the plug pulled on us at any point in time by all the big tech corporations. It's just it's just a matter of time before when it's going to happen. And they've been saying, we saw this before. This is how it happened last time. And we had I had someone on, on Twitter just a few weeks ago saying, hey, I watched this happen in South America. It's happening here. No one listens to them because the media is fully complicit with all of it. Live not by lies. Live not by lies. Well, here's the lies from the World Economic Forum. Uh... These are not just predictions. These are, these are what they want you to desire. And look very carefully at them. Because then, then you go, how are they ever going to get people to do this stuff? And then you see what's happened with COVID. Then you see what's happened with a virus that has a 99.95% survival rate in anybody under 70. And how it's been used, how it's been politicized, how it's been turned into the great panic of 2020. Because once you panic people, you can control people and you can talk them into doing anything to keep their safety. Once they're panicked and no longer are interested in the truth. So here is, uh, it's only a minute and a half long, uh, eight predictions of the world in 2030 from the World Economic Forum. So there you go. I mean, uh, in 90 seconds, there you have global socialism from the World Economic Forum. You, you won't own anything. Anything you, you need, you'll rent from somebody else. Um, <laughs> so all the, all the rosy stuff about, you know, you might be getting ready to go to Mars or something like that. Um, so this is, this is obviously single-payer health care. Uh, all done by the government, which we all know means in the real world today, many people die because they can't get life-saving surgeries because there's too much of a delay and issues like that. Um, So so there you go. You'll you'll be a vegan. Um, No personal autonomy, no personal liberty, no personal freedoms, 
Uh, everyone has to think the same way, act the same way, um, and uh, you'll just all be serfs of the government. And that's the World Economic Forum, and that's what all the rich elites want for you. It's called the Great Reset, folks. The Great Reset. And uh, they, they literally are that close to accomplishing it because uh, already 50 million people have voted in the United States. And so all the stuff that's come out about Hunter Biden and Chinese money and all the rest of that stuff, those 50 million people have already voted. Uh, and, and how many of them, and, uh, you know, probably close to 25 million of those have voted for a man who is non-compass mentis, who, who literally doesn't know what day it is, doesn't know where he is, doesn't know where he's going. Uh, he doesn't know what office he's running for. He doesn't know who he's running against. Hey, George. Hey, George. Yeah. Uh, I, it's astonishing. These are all facts. This is reality. And then uh, and I saw uh, uh, just uh, today uh, one of the people that I follow um, on, uh, on Twitter put together a whole list of people who, in response to the um, uh, establishment of Justice Barrett on the Supreme Court, we're talking about burning the Constitution, packing the court, destroying the nation. You know, if those people are American citizens, that used to be called being a traitor. That was called treason and uh, was extremely dangerous and could, like, get you executed. But now it's standard fare on Twitter. That's, that's the situation we're facing. So, so there's the um, there's WEF, World Economic Forum. Now, I mentioned that I... Uh, uh, Went on a long ride yesterday. I did two things on that ride. I listened to a debate that we're going to talk about at the end of the program. Well, halfway through the program or pretty soon or whenever. Um, and then I also began listening to Rod Dreher's book. Got about, I don't know, three, qu- three quarters, 80% of the way through it, something along those lines. And uh, so, uh, it, like I said, it's from a Solzhenitsyn quote, live not by lies. I, I would highly recommend it to you. Uh, Rod Dreher's theology is Eastern Orthodox, and so there are, I think, some gaping holes, especially when it comes to anthropology. Um, and to a rather broad ecumenism that, again, is one of the issues that I've been, I've seen this coming for a long time as far as, as we are being pushed into a smaller and smaller social space. Um, the fact that the vast majority of people don't know why they're not another perspective is going to be problematic, going to be very, very problematic. The, the specifics of what we believe and why we believe it will be um, swept under the rug by and large. And the problem is that leads to fundamentally different answers to the big questions, the big worldview questions. If you believe that man is created in the image of God and that man is suppressing the knowledge of God, and that man's heart is a factory of idols. That's going to change everything. If you, if you believe that man, if, you, if you're like a provisionist, and believe that man has the capacity in and of himself without the intervention of divine grace uh, to do what is good and right in God's sight, to have faith and repent and all of these things, um, that's going to give you a completely different outcome when it comes to looking at issues such as government, Law, these are fundamental issues. And as I was saying earlier, it's very obvious to me that whether you have a God-centered 
theology or a man-centered theology. And, and that people ask too simplistic. No. There is a way of identifying that. If you believe that God is accomplishing his will in this world, that he has formed the fabric of time, then to be consistent, you have to have a God-centered theology. Um, if you do not believe that, you can only have a man-centered theology. You, you can't have a God-centered theology, because God's waiting on mankind to see what mankind's going to do anyways. So, or he gave over the final result to mankind. It, it, however you work it, there, there is a way to determine those two things. And I submit to you that it is the, it is, it is the tendency of humankind to exalt humankind's capacity to give to ourselves freedom and capacity and ability. We'll get into a little more of that and its importance in a debate that I listened to in, in a moment. But so, so why would I suggest a book by a, because I, I criticized Rod Dreher's uh, Benedict Option, which came out a couple years ago, which obviously is related. Uh, but obviously he's a very uh, good thinker, and I, I remember before I did the debate with um, John Dominic Crossan before the cruise many years ago, we did a, a class. And during the debate, Shabir mentioned some of the books that I mentioned that I had recommended to the class as if by recommending the book, that meant I believed everything that was in the book. And I'm like, no, this is a class. You put uh, on a graduate level class, or really it should be almost any level class, you're going to put things in your bibliography or expose students to things that are not necessarily representative of where you're coming from, just simply that's what the educational process is about. Unless you're a fundamentalist, and then you only have them read fundamentalist books. Um, and so this would be a situation where I'm, I'm going, look, you're, you're going to be challenged by some of the things he says. Sometimes you're tracking along going, yeah, yeah, oh boy, I hadn't thought about that. And all of a sudden there will be this, whoop, and so, so it skips, sort of like on an old record, you know. And you're like, why did that happen? And if you think about, oh, it's because he's not an evangelical and he doesn't have the same, you know, foundations in certain things. as, as So we've been going along pretty well, and then, whoop, uh, or sometimes like, phew, off to the side or something like that. That's the experience you'll have in, in reading Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox and, and all sorts of things like that. Um, but there's still, he still put a lot of work into it. And it was uh, basically one, what, what he's saying is what we're seeing coming is a soft totalitarianism, a totalitarianism, not so much enforced by government decree as by the society itself as seen in the large tech companies and corporations. Um, in the book, he mentioned that many of those larger corporations like Apple uh, and Google and Facebook have more money on hand than many of the nations in the world. Well, actually, most nations in the world have no money at all <laughs> when you think about it. Um, but their, their, their economic capacity and power is greater than entire countries or entire groups of countries. And they are the mechanism that is being used to enforce a societal totalitarianism. It's a soft totalitarianism. It's not the Russians rolling into town with tanks and, est and establishing a puppet government, which is what happened in Eastern Europe after World War II. Uh, instead, it, it actually 
flows from the consent of the no longer governed but ruled. Again, you vote your way in. And it is a bowing to new societal goods that that then demand that they and they alone be seen as good. So that any other perspective is now considered to be evil and is not to be spoken of and shall not appear on social platforms and cannot have access to the Internet. And if your organization believes those things, and that's called hate-mongering, and, and if you associate with people like that, you can lose your job. And, and all of that type of totalitarianism was present under Soviet-style uh, totalitarianism and is present today in China. But it is interesting to compare and contrast the Chinese model today with what took place before, because this is, this is for me, the key, uh, at least key to how I've been thinking about it. And that is, Dreher spends a lot of time talking about Soviet dissidents and, and people in Czechoslovakia and places like that that resisted the communist regime and how they resisted, because part of the book is about, well, how will we resist when this happens? But the problem is, looking back, yes, I think it's good to look back. It's good to know what they went through. It's good to know how they resisted. But the one thing they weren't facing was technology. And the massive government control of every aspect of the life of every citizen of China is what we are looking at coming in the United States. The, 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 the infrastructure is already in place. The ability to have the cameras, the tracking devices, the listening devices in your homes, which many people have voluntarily placed in their homes, um, and, you know, all, all for making our life easier, of course. Um, but all that kind of stuff, that is uh, the part of the soft totalitarianism that ends up becoming hard totalitarianism. I, I don't see personally how soft totalitarianism can avoid becoming the hard totalitarianism of the Chinese Communist Party. But what has changed, and to me is, this, this was a, an important insight, not so much that he stayed, but in th- listening to him speaking, um, made me think about this. What the, what the Chinese have done that is even more insidious is they learn from the mistakes of the Soviets. And they came to understand that an unhappy, unfed, unsatisfied populace is eventually going to throw you out. You're eventually going to run out of people to run the machinery, and they'll, they'll, they'll eventually throw you out. So what you need to do is you need to have enough economic power going on to allow the people to fulfill their fleshly desires for food, luxuries, video games, sex, um, keep people satiated, physically satiated, keep them busy. Uh, If they're starving, that makes for martyrs. You don't want martyrs. You don't want that guy standing in front of the tank in in Tiananmen Square which has already been wiped out of the memory of the Chinese people. Almost no young Chinese person has any knowledge whatsoever of Tiananmen. They don't even know what happened. 
That's only whispered about by a very small number of people. Um, so what's interesting is Western deck. So this is how this is how you can abuse capitalism and then use communism, Marxism, and in both satisfy the sinful desires of man. In you can abuse capitalism by through greed and the promotion of immorality, the destruction of the family, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, undercut the society. Or under Chinese-style communism, you satiate these desires, uh, you provide the food, you provide the, the games, and that keeps people docile so that they do not rebel against the fact that they have no freedom and they have no future and they have no transcendent value at all. Life is just living. It's just, it's just rinse and repeat until you die and then you're, you're gone because that's all they have to offer. That's all they have to offer. And so you just have to satiate people for as long as possible. Um, and it is that Chinese style of communism, of totalitarianism, uh, that is coming and coming quickly. And we have seen over the past, um, what, um, seven, eight months, how easily it can happen. How easily it can happen. We, we just, in years past, I just could not see what would cause the American people to voluntarily become wards of the state? To voluntarily become snitches on their neighbors? And yet, now we know what it is. Terrify them. Make them afraid. Risk, tell them that their lives are at risk, even when all the numbers say their lives are not at risk. Um, and people will give up. They, they have no idea what Patrick Henry was talking about, and if you really honest, they would say Patrick Henry was a nut. Give me liberty, give me death? No. Right now, the American side is saying, give me safe imprisonment rather than death. That's what, that's what America is saying. Every one of you driving down the car, alone, in, driving down the road, alone in your car with a mask on, is saying, give me imprisonment rather than death. I am afraid I am scared. And if the people that now live in this country had lived in this country in the early 1770s, there would be no country because there would have been no Revolutionary War. There would have been no Constitution. That's just the way it is. It's sad. It's sad, but it's true. So that kind of Chinese totalitarianism is... Depending on what happens next week and in the days afterwards, as um, people are, you know, because Pennsylvania has, I think, four days uh, to keep producing ballots, <laughs> keep sending them in until you get what you need. And everybody says that's the one state right now. That's that's the balance state. And so they uh, they were given the ability to they'll know exactly how many votes they need. And I I have. This much confidence, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I've never seen what we saw here Saturday in Phoenix. Never seen it. How long was that line? I heard 45 
I I've heard I heard even longer, but um, we had a a parade of vehicles flying Trump flags that literally circled our valley. And for some of you who don't realize, um, our valley is huge. This the, we're talking 50, 60 miles. I I heard a hundred miles. So I had heard forty miles the week before. Yeah, it's like 45 miles a week before, it's over 100 miles this week, of vehicles flying Trump flags, driving the freeways. Because you can, you can start in the Northwest Valley in Phoenix at 65 miles per hour, and an hour and a half later, you're still in the valley in the southeast corner of Phoenix at 65 miles an hour. It's just that huge. It's just that big. Um, I've never seen anything like this, but I still have very low confidence in the accuracy of the vote count. I'll just be honest with you. I'm just, just telling you straight. Uh, mail-in stuff, I, it was back in March, I was saying, oh, gracious, they're going to try to make this a mail-in election. And they succeeded. And the Supreme Court helped them to do it, as did Justice Roberts. By the way, I do not believe there's a 6-3 conservative uh, court at all. Now there's a 5-4 mainly conservative court. Um, Roberts is no, is no conservative. He never was, never will be. And seemingly, the longer those people are on the court, the more they swing left. So there you go. Um, so anyhow, uh, back to a point, many, many points ago. A lot of people who lived under this stuff have seen this before. They see the lies. They've tried to warn us. We're not listening. Um, and so I still think that this would be a, a book that's well worth your reading, a lot of the quotations were really good. It certainly provides you with some history that a lot of people do not know at all today. They have no idea the cost and the suffering of people under Marxism. If people knew, um, simple common sense would keep them from doing the things they're doing, but they don't know. And so there is no common sense. And so this is what we are, are facing uh, in, in our society today. And so it was... Um, Historic last night, it, um, you saw some political theater last night because, because um, ACB, and there are people saying you're not supposed to call her ACB because that's stealing from Judge Ginsburg's legacy, you know, because she was, you know, they used her initials too. Uh, and I just, and I, someone on, some famous person on Twitter was saying that and I just responded, no. <laughs> No, not make me. Um, but you saw some political theater last night because um, she was not sworn in last night. That was today. And that was from with Justice Roberts. Um, that was faux. But there was a reason for it. There was a big reason for it. And that was Clarence Thomas. And who tried to ravage Clarence Thomas? In his, um, in, in his Senate confirmation hearings, Joe Biden, who was also the person who went after and destroyed Robert Bork. Um, well, Kennedy and Biden did both, but they were both involved with it. And so that was pure political theater, pure political theater uh, to, to do that. But it was certainly historic and memorable. Um, and we will see what literally the next 90 days uh, is going to mean as to whether there will still be what is left of a constitutional republic in the United States or whether the last major – because I'll be honest with you. 
if Kamala Harris, because Joe Biden's not even there, if Kamala Harris is president of the United States in January of 2021, the last barrier to the Great Reset falls. And so it starts. And so just get used to socialism, uh, being a war of the state, um, limited dietary choices, constant masking anywhere, and limited religious choices. You, you walk outside the door of your home, and maybe even inside your home, you'll have to have a mask on. Doesn't matter what you do, where you go. Um, that's... We've been, and, and when it happens, and a bunch of you are going, this is terrible... The rest of us are going to be sitting there going, we tried to tell you. We tried to tell you, but you weren't listening. Well, we thought you were scaremongering us. No, we were just trying to tell you the truth. (laughs) That's just all there is to it. So, there you go. Um, Wow. So, Da 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 da. Okay. Uh, I'm distracted by the stuff there. I'm not going to be looking in that direction. Okay. So the other thing that I listened to uh, was, again, especially over the past year, and it started sort of a little bit before that, but has been given great impetus now, especially over the past year, there has been this explosion. There's an explosion in debating. Um, these are rarely debates that have been prepared for for lengthy periods of time. Very often they do not involve people who are actually experts in the field at all. Um, they just generally are timed opening and closing statements and then a free-for-all in between is, is what I'm seeing in, in most situations. And so you get two people, and they go online for a few hours, and they, they do their thing, and, and so now this is just happening like every single day. And like I said, that's the Jaros Wilson thing coming up in, in less than an hour and a half. Um, online, virtual, uh, we just moved a bunch of equipment into the new studio, uh, be working on stuff, I think you said tomorrow? Uh, so who knows when that's going to happen, though obviously my desire is not to have that thing being used every night, but when it is used for it to be high-quality stuff that will be worthwhile 10 years down the road. Uh, I think that's really the, the goal in, in that type of situation. But anyway, so I listened to a debate I had not heard of, um, I think, as I was going to bed, was it Friday night? Something like that. Uh, someone texted me a link to it. I thought it was a link to a thing. I clicked on it, and then I saw it was still ongoing. Uh, between uh, Matt Slick of CARM, CARM.org, and Sam Shamoon. And it was on the subject, it was supposed to be, supposed to be, is limited atonement biblical? Um, that got touched upon a little bit, but not much. Now, I appreciated it. it 
both sides tried <laughs> to start off <laughs> in a um, ironic manner. Uh, Matt Slick's always very ironic in that way. Um, it didn't stay that way. Let's put it that way. I think I got through an hour and 45 minutes before the constant talking over and going over the same question for the 20th time. Just, I, I, okay, that's enough. I, I stopped the bike and, and switched. Uh, that's when I switched to Dreher's uh, work, actually. Uh, but I listened to certainly enough of it to know what was, what was going on with it. And so I appreciated Matt's presentation. I appreciated that, I guess, uh, before the debate started, Sam actually posted his notes. But I, I think that a mistake that Matt made was that he then primarily, his opening statement was primarily focused upon answering Sam's notes. Well, that, that ended up really limiting the conversation um, and to just a to basically Colossians one, Colossians two, and and just a few other texts sort of thrown in in passing, but over and over and over again, the same text came up, and so there was no overarching presentation whatsoever, or even almost reference to the place that particular redemption plays in the whole action of Father, Son, Holy Spirit in redeeming a particular people unto himself. Some of you may recall, well, well a, lot of pe- a lot of you are, are new listeners. Man, it is getting dry. Whew. Man, it is dried out. My lips are chapping and everything else. Terrible. I wonder if post-tenebrous Lux Bible butter uh, would work on lips. <laughs> I'm about to find out. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, I've told the story before. Uh, 20 years ago, maybe 21 years ago now, um, I first went to St. Charles. I'm going to St. Charles again, by the way. It will be there. I may be driving. I may drive this time. It's a two-day trip, but I may drive this time. Because um, j- I'm, I'm driving from there back down to prior afterwards. So I'm going to have to rent a vehicle anyways. Sort of seems like, you know, get a lot of reading done that way. Uh, But uh, listening, obviously. Um, But the first time I went to to, to, uh, St. Charles, um, or was it the second time? Yeah, I think it was the second time because the first time I was on a local radio station and then I think think the second time there was this anti-Calvinist guy and his name is, has escaped me. Uh, I could probably bring it, bring it to mind if I thought about it for a few, few moments and wasn't trying to talk at the same time. Um, but there was this guy who was fairly well known for teaching against every aspect of the five points of Calvinism. I think he was local. And he put forward a challenge for me to debate him on this radio station that I had been on when I was there for the first time to speak. I think the first time I went there was in June, and then ever since then, it's been the first weekend in December. This will be the 20th year um, that I've, I've been there. 20 years we've done this now. 
very patient people <laughs> hear that or desperate people. I'm not sure which anyway. Um, and he wanted to debate eternal security. Well, you know, that's not my favorite terminology at all. I certainly do not believe in eternal security in the um, non-reformed understanding of one saved, always saved, got your ticket punched, do, go do whatever you want, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The reformed understanding is that Christ will infallibly save those given to him by the Father, and that means that saving faith will endure. So the perseverance, preservation or perseverance of the saints. Preservation would be the divine side. Perseverance would be how we would see it in life. Uh, but it's the result of the fact that the Father has given a people to the Son, and it's his will that the Son lose none of them. And he won't lose any of them. So this, it's, it's really, the fundamental issue is, is, can Jesus save perfectly? And only Calvinists believe that Jesus can save perfectly. Only Calvinists believe that. Oh, stop being so angry and just listen to what I'm saying. There is a difference between saying that Jesus can make salvation available and Jesus can save perfectly. Those are not the same statements. And if you are any kind of synergist, any kind of synergist at all, a simple synergist, there's only a, one thing you have to do, or a complex synergist, there's a whole bunch of stuff you have to do through a sacramental system. If you're any kind of synergist, you cannot believe that Jesus is a perfect Savior, because to be a Savior is not simply to make something hypothetically possible, it's to actually accomplish it. And so when the Father's will for the Son is he's lose none of those given to him, only Calvinists believe he does that. Just a fact. Because even, I, I know what you're thinking, I know your system, I do listen. You're thinking, no, 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 no. Jesus saves those the Father gives because the Father looks in the future and sees who's going to believe in him. It still depends upon their belief. Jesus, there is no human being on the planet that Jesus can save perfectly, that their free will is not the deciding factor in whether we can do it or not. Because you're a synergist. That's the whole point. So anyway, um, this is, you know, that's, that's, that's what this guy wanted to debate. His name just, you know how, the, how a name can sort of float right, <laughs> right past you? Because the, the name... The guy's name just is that close. So, so there's like three brain cells left in my, in my brain that are right now working together to try to bring that guy's name up. <laughs> and they're going to be at it for days until they die or something because, you know, after 40, you've got brain cells dying right, left, and center. So it's, just, it's sad. Um, <laughs> I, remember, I remember my health teacher, my biology teacher in sixth grade told us that, and I've, I've just never... I just figured, oh, man, I might as well shoot myself after 40 because <laughs> he told me how many tens of thousands of brain cells are going to start dying after that. I think, oh, wonderful. Uh, and now I'm, I've been there for a long, long time now, so it gives me a really good excuse. So anyway, so this guy, he wanted to debate eternal security. And I'm like, well, all right, you know, I'll lay the foundation in, in, in the... In, in meaningful theology. And then he writes in and says, oh, and you cannot mention any of the other five points of Calvinism. Huh? No. No. Yeah, uh-huh. 
Yep. Yeah, you're right. You, you're, you're right, but Mark Carpenter's the, the other guy. See? Now you're doing. Now you've got three brain cells working on it too. Between the two of us, six brain cells might get there. So yeah, you remember who I'm talking about? It. I. He'd be on the blog because I did. I did write articles uh, in response to it. Um. So anyway. Yeah, in, in, in a few moments, uh, all of a sudden, in the middle of a sentence, you'll hear something coming from the other side of the, of the wall, and that'll be when Rich finds the... Uh, uh, what? Dan Corner. Thank you very much. See? Saw it coming. Yep, Dan Corner. Guy named, guy's name was Dan Corner. I think he's still around. In fact, that's what I was looking for, is I, I thought that I had a uh, one of the crazy anti-Calvinism books uh, from... But maybe not. I don't know. Maybe he never got around to writing. But anyways, Dan Corner. He did not want me to to even... What? What's on Amazon? The book. His book is called The Believer's Conditional Security, Eternal Security Refuted. Okay. So it's actually on Amazon. Well, there's a lot of stuff on Amazon. Now, anyways, I'm not sure how much is going to be there in the future. Okay, so I, of course, said not going to do it. Because the perseverance of the saints, the preservation of the saints, is a truth based upon preceding doctrinal realities. So if I can't talk about the sovereignty of God, if I can't talk about man's deadness and sin, if I can't talk about the perfection of the sacrifice of Christ, if I can't talk about the Spirit's ability to raise to spiritual life those that he chooses to do so, based upon the electing grace of the Father— if I can't talk about all of that, then there, it, there's no reason to believe in the perseverance of the saints. It is based upon... And that's why when you hear, uh, you know, when we've talked about provisionism, we've, we've, we, we hear people saying, well, you know, you try to defend uh, particular redemption and, and you're basing it upon other theological truths. Yeah, that's because... Christian theology isn't made up of atomized, separate doctrines that just exist over here all by themselves without a connection to everything else. That's, that's true. And the problem with the debate that I listened to is that a, a particular redemption was never defined as it relates to any of the other great doctrines of the faith. The necessity of particular redemption in light of the harmony of the Father and the Son. Um, As always, some of the objections to particular redemption were actually objections to the unconditional electing grace of God. And underlying all of it, underlying all of it, if you, if you listened to that debate, at least to the part that was worth listening to in the first hour or so, if you listened to that debate presuppositionally, you recognize that what was being debated but not discussed was, is there, is God working his purpose in this world according to his sovereign decree? Uh, Sam Shamoon mentioned the decree a, a few times, not positively any longer. He doesn't believe in that anymore. Um, but he did mention it. 
but that's what that's what was being debated. That's what was behind everything. And the reason that you ended up with this talking over and talking past constantly later on was the foundational issues had not been resolved at all. And you know that's why I, that's why I eventually you just stop and just uh, okay that's that you know we've been going around the same gum stump here for the past twenty minutes and nothing's being accomplished let's let's move on to something else now um, what was fascinating was there there was one thing that what was interesting is everybody who sent me the link who clearly had been listening at the time or listened shortly thereafter, everybody said the same thing. Did you hear Sam Shamoon say that Jesus's atonement was applied to Satan? And so that was, that was the issue that was, I think caught most people's attention. And you must understand why Sam Shamoon said that. And so I, I want to at least talk a little bit about that, and we're, we're going to look at Colossians and Ephesians and spend some time in the Scripture from this point forward, uh, which I think is, uh, is a good thing to do, especially in these days where uh, everything else is going on. I don't even want to look at that. Okay, um, here's the argument from Sam Shamoon, and he's been using this argument for a couple of years now ever since he decided he wasn't reformed anymore. And let me just say, I don't, I don't know where Sam is right now. As far as I can tell, um, he seems to be a mixture of a Syrian Catholic, provisionist, TR-onlyist. Um, it's, I, I don't know uh, if he uh, attends a church. I don't know if he's under the authority of elders, bishops, priests. I don't know. I have no earthly idea. I don't know. He, he lives in the valley here now. Um, but he's gone off to do his own thing. I think, that's what, I think that was one of the problems with the debate. Is, it, is that it, I try, it's not always possible, but I try to make sure that when we're doing a debate, the position of both sides is clearly known beforehand so that there can be a standard of consistency to which a person is held. I think, I think it's really important. Uh, it, it, otherwise, the other side can just bend and weave and, what is that, airbender thing or something like that, you know, um, matrix, you know, like the agent, and you shoot and can't hit anything because they're really not there. Because there's no one position. They don't have to defend anything. And I think that's a, that's a real, real problem, and especially in apologetics, just in general, just in general. I'm going to say something here, and this is about all apologetics. Um, let me give you a tip. You want to know who to listen to in the field of apologetics? Ask a simple question. Is this person in regular attendance, in good standing with a sound New Testament church. If they are simply out on their own, 
if they're just doing their own thing, if they're making stuff up as they go along, if there's no uh, confession that defines where they are, they shouldn't be doing apologetics. Uh, There is no office of apologist in the New Testament. To be able to refute those who contradict is something that is said to be one of the qualifications of being an elder in the church. It doesn't mean you have to be an elder to do apologetics, but elders should have capacity in the field. But the point is, it's done in the church. And I have consistently said for a long time that there are a number of people online who do apologetics, who, as far as I know, only rarely darken the door of a church. Some are literally still under discipline from churches uh, themselves. And large number of them do not have any role of leadership whatsoever in a local church. They're not a part of the body. There are few activities more detrimental spiritually, more likely to exacerbate sinful errors in a person's life than being involved with apologetics. You you go, (laughs) sounds like you're scaring people away. No, just being a realist. Just just trying to be a realist. Um, There aren't many organizations that have been doing apologetics as long as we have. We're coming up on 40 years. And so I've got a few miles on the treads, and I've seen people come and go, and I've seen ministries come and go, and I've seen entire ministries hang lefts and rights and face plants and just explode and just all sorts of things. And one of the consistencies was a tenuous, distant connection to the church. Um, Take that for what it's worth. But I... Stand by the assertion. And so if you want to know who to listen to, do they preach? doesn't mean you have to be a preacher to be an apologist. I'm not saying that. But are they involved in the church? Do they have that balancing reality of ministry to the body of Christ in the local church? Don't, Don't give me the universal church stuff. It's real easy to say you love the brethren as long as you never have to meet with them. As long as you never have to visit them in the hospital or deal with the family issues or, or all the rest of that kind of stuff. Uh, that's, that's real easy. That's real easy to do. So just something to be said there. Uh, hopefully some wisdom from someone who's been around for a while uh, that you can take and, and, and put away. All right. Here's the argument. What Sam says is, is look, you look at Colossians chapter 1 and you have... In verses 15 and following, Jesus as the creator of all things. And that this, the extent of his creative action is unlimited in Colossians chapter 1. And since all things, visible, invisible, heaven and earth, 
thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him, verse Colossians one twenty. here's the issue, through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace of the blood of his cross, through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. And so, his argument is, if the all things, um, if, if the, the ta panta of 16 and 17 is entire, the, the entire created order, and that's only a few verses earlier, then verse 20, through him to reconcile all things to himself. Therefore, if the uh, rulers and authorities, dominions, heaven and earth, of verse 16, include Satan, then through him to reconcile all things to himself, verse 20, include Satan. And so the assertion was, but Satan will never be saved. Why? Because Satan will not believe. So, you have, and I don't know whether Sam has thought this through, but you have the absolute centrality of creaturely autonomy, including even Satan himself. Now, there, there are a lot of issues here. <laughs> a lot of issues here. Just on the surface. Just on the surface. Um, Satan is not only a creature of God, but his role in his sovereign decree has already been laid out, just as clearly as Judas's has been laid out. And so, there is no reason to talk about satanic autonomy, <laughs> or to even assume satanic autonomy, let alone to think that Satan could repent and believe in Jesus. The atonement involved the incarnation of Christ. Jesus takes on a perfect human nature in the hypostatic union. So that, through that representative nature, we can be united with him in his death. Satan does not have a human nature, and therefore he cannot be united with Christ. And therefore, there is no atonement made for him. Therefore, the whole teaching is, from a Pauline perspective, absurd, because Sam has missed something fairly obvious in the text. Because of his monomaniacal, that is not a negative term, that is a descriptive term. Monomaniacal means you focus upon one thing, to the exclusion of everything around it a monomaniacal emphasis upon the continuation of the context from 16 and 17 into, into 20, not realizing that there has already been an expansion in the context that we'll look at in a moment. But the point is that what, one of the things disappointed me about the whole debate, basic definitional issues were never mentioned. Well, okay, take that back. May have been mentioned after all the food fighting that I gave up on. <laughs> after all the talking over and hearing half a sentence 
and no moderator stepping in to, to do anything about it. Um, uh, okay, uh, maybe after all that, all the basic definitions came out, but the chances aren't really good because now you're getting into audience questions. And once you get into audience questions, the, the, normally the entire topic of the debate has now been lost and you just go off into whatever and spend the rest of your time talking about stuff that you weren't supposed to be talking about. Anyway, lots of fundamental issues were never defined. For example, what does reconcile mean? Does reconcile always mean the same thing? What does it mean to reconcile tapanta, all things? What does it mean to reconcile someone through faith? What does it mean, is there a difference in reconciling the creation and reconciling people in Christ? Why is katalaso, the Greek term, why is that used of the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile? To God, why are why why were the Corinthians told to be reconciled to God? All of that is extremely important because reconciliation is a broad subject. It was assumed to have one meaning and one application in whatever context it was placed in the debate, and that's why the debate was on that level worthless. Because if you don't even define what reconcile is and don't recognize no, there was no recognition, for example, about the fact that Ephesians and Colossians are parallel texts, that there are entire parallel sections between the two of them, written concurrently. Uh, I think um, that in Colossians 4.16, Paul is referring to Ephesians when he says, read the epistle coming from Laodicea. I think that was the the epistle to the Ephesians, which was to be passed around the churches in the Lycus River Valley. Um, so they, they have overlap that gives us further information about what Catalasso, Apocatalasso, the whole range of terms regarding reconciliation the different meanings that has. Because we know in Paul, sanctification has a both positional and experiential element. Why wouldn't reconciliation have both? Why can't reconciliation have governmental and covenantal aspects to it? Why is it only soteriological? Why is it only redemptive? Sam just assumed full redemptive. So, class 120, redemptive. Just cram it in there. And so Satan has been reconciled. And so he's not alone in this. This has happened in church history. There, there are theologians today who believe that reconciliation has been accomplished by Christ, but that it's all just theoretical. It's all just theoretical. And so there are those who fail to make the proper distinctions. There are covenantal distinctions. There are distinctions in regards to God's overarching rulership of all that's created, as well as his redemptive purpose in redeeming a particular people in Christ Jesus. So there are aspects, uh, for example, when we talk about the resurrection of Christ, 
did not the resurrection of Christ have cosmic implications? Yeah, of course. When the Creator enters into His own creation, gives His life, and then rises from the dead, that has implications for the entire cosmos. And Paul mentioned them in Acts 17, remember? He's preaching on Mars Hill. And when he says God's going to judge all men, by whom? The one he he raised from the dead. So, there is a um, there is a rightness that has been introduced into the universe by the work of Christ that includes the propriety of him being judge. Who would be a better judge than the one who entered into human flesh, lived a perfect life, in perfect obedience to the Father, and then gave himself as a perfect sacrifice for sin. That's the kind of judge I want, huh? I mean, you can't make the argument, well, God can't judge me. He doesn't know what it's like to be a human being, right? So Jesus is perfectly fit to be judge. And so you can say that part, that one aspect of the purpose of the Incarnation The purpose of the resurrection is found in what? In the justification of God, that God's judgment at the final day will be just. And Paul talked about this. This is what theodicy is. The justification of God. Let God be just and every man a liar. Right? But is that the only reason? And does that one reason then overpower all others? Or is there, is, is there not the central reason being the union of the elect with the incarnate Son so that his death becomes their death, his resurrection, their resurrection, the, the great exchange, their sin imputed to him, his righteousness imputed to them. But that requires a real atonement not a theoretical atonement. And that was one of the things that, again, didn't come up. May have come up after the hour and 45-minute mark or something in in a later question. I don't know. But it it didn't in what came up before. And one one of the phrases that Sam Shamoon used more than once, I was going to grab the book, forgot to. But one of the phrases he used comes from uh, the book by Murray, Redemption accomplished and applied. And so over and over again, Sam said to Matt, even you, as a Calvinist, recognize the difference between the accomplishment of redemption or the accomplishment of atonement or the accomplishment of reconciliation and the application. And he tried to make the argument that if we were to be consistent in believing that the elect, for example, died with Christ, in reality, that that would mean we could not be born as sons and daughters of wrath. And here's where there was just a a fundamental either misunderstanding or misrepresentation by Sam Shamoon in regards to what what we mean when we use the phraseology, redemption accomplished and applied. Certainly, if he has ever read that fine work on the Ordo Salutis, 
then he would know that when we speak of redemption accomplished, we actually mean that it has infallibly been accomplished in Christ, because the union of the elect with Christ is a perfect reality in the mind of God. There is no question that every one of those who died with Christ will come into existence. Now, that could not be said if there is not a divine decree. If you do not have a divine decree, if you do not believe that the very fabric of time is the result of the good will and good purposes of God, you don't have any basis for even asserting. You're stuck with a passive observation of God of future events. That's all. God knows what's going to happen in the future because he passively observes it, not because he's decreed it. And if man has human autonomy, man can always change his mind. And that would mean that if one person, if one person in history could do what God's knowledge does not know, then all the future, all the future could be changed and the entire identity of the elect would have to be changed as a result. One person. I could come up with a thousand different scenarios where the actions of one person would result in a completely different future. There's no question about this. So when we say redemption accomplished and applied, it was accomplished with certainty, which is why it can be said in Ephesians that we have been seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But that's from the eternal perspective. That's God's perspective. Now, that is the perspective that conditions time, but it's not how we experience it. We, we couldn't know that. We are time-bound creatures. And so when we talk about redemption accomplished and applied, the application takes place in time. And so we are born in Adam. That is a true relationship that we have. And just because it is absolutely certain in the decree of God that he is going to bring about our regeneration, our forgiveness, our, uh, he is going to grant to us faith and repentance, all of those things are going to become a reality when God decrees that it happens to bring about his own honor and glory and to then use that to bring other people into relationship with him at the time that he has decreed that that is going to take place, in the way he has decreed that's going to take place, just because that's part of God's decree does not mean that it's real. Real. That it's fake. That it's, um, that it's uh, sci-fi. That whatever it is. That doesn't make it unreal. It just means it's temporal and has to be manifested in time. And when you try to say that the temporal is the only reality, then you're denying... You, 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 if you're going to be consistent, you're going to have to say that God is limited to time as well. You're going to have to make him a temporal being as well. And time then becomes something that actually exists outside of God and rules over God. There, there are, then there are, people that, there are people that go there. Lots of people that go there. And they all end up fundamentally denying foundational Christian truths. So... When we speak of redemption accomplished and applied, the um, false distinction that Sam Shamoon attempted to, to introduce 
uh, where you can have redemption accomplished. So redemption has been accomplished for Satan. Redemption has been accomplished for all things, all principalities and powers. But it's only theoretical. Application is dependent upon mankind. You see, redemption accomplished and applied, it's accomplished by God and applied by God in the way God chooses to do so in time. It's accomplished in Jesus Christ and in him perfectly. And that's what makes it personal. Because once you have, once you transfer the autonomous authority to man, then what is accomplished is the possibility, the theoretical possibility of a certain people who may choose to be in Christ. But it becomes impersonal. The elect become impersonal. Depend upon their personal faith. And of course the problem then becomes, well, how does God know what an autonomous creature is going to do? And the open theist says he can't. And that's why I've said over and over again, it's the open theist that is the consistent synergist. And the others are just know the Bible doesn't teach that. They just don't want to believe what comes out from that, what, what is required of that. I haven't even gotten into Colossians yet, have I? A lot of background material to get into. Um, but let, let me just wrap that, that, that part up. Um, the idea that the atonement, that the giving of a perfect human life voluntarily by the Son could bring about redemption for non-humans. Now remember, redemption. I'm not saying that the principalities and powers are not impacted by, bound by, in awe of the sacrifice of Christ. But what was missing was a recognition of the difference of the cosmic purposes of God, which are clearly bound up in theodicy, the demonstration of his justice. There there is a demonstration of God's wisdom and justice that is seen in the salvation of a specific people in and through the work of Jesus Christ. No question about it. But that is not the same thing as the redemptive question, which was the question of the debate. Because when you're talking about particular redemption, whether you want to accept this or not, we're the ones that defined the term, right? Particular redemption is the assertion that there is a perfect harmony between the identity of the elect flowing from the unconditional election of God the Father and the work of the Son in their behalf so as to bear their sin so as to be their perfect savior. So that's all soteriological. That's all redemptive. When you ask what was the redemptive intention of the Son on the cross, it is specific and personal. And it did not and could not include Satan, who was not obviously given by the Father to the Son, who is not a human being, and therefore no corresponding atonement has been made for him. So, there was a 
hopefully completely unintentional, uh, real error promulgated there in regard to either the nature of the Incarnation or the role of the Incarnation in atonement, as to what atonement is. But that seemingly flowed from Sam Shimon's insistence to look at verse 20 as being coextensive with, as far as its scope, verses 16 and 17, and a failure to even have a discussion of what apokatalaxi means in Colossians 1.20. It, it didn't even come up. So, let's, let's consider that. So, we read it. We have the extensiveness. Oh, you, what, you wanted to try to put it up? Eh, everybody's got their Bible out. Um, we recognize the extensiveness of the creative act of the Son in Colossians 1. Why? What's the background issue? Well, it's a form of angel worship and proto-Gnosticism. And so, in talking about Christ, let's go back to, you, you, you have Paul's prayer, the, the Church Colossae, strength of all power, according to his glorious might, taking of all steadfastness, patience, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us. This is addressed to Christians who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So as with all the others, you have the emphasis upon uh, the divine initiative, divine accomplishment. We are giving thanks to the Father. He has qualified us. We didn't qualify ourselves. We qualify, he qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. How did he do that? How were we qualified to share in this cosmic inheritance? For he rescued us from the domain of darkness. He did that. And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, as we've seen in Romans 8, so we see here, all of these things elsewhere when talking about the nature of the gospel, avoiding Judaism, everything else, what does Paul emphasize? This is by faith, not by works of law. But as he does in Romans 8, here in Colossians chapter 1, God does all these things. How do we have redemption? Well, faith, but it's not mentioned here because it's a divine act. And faith the gift of faith given to the elect of God will have that faith that pleases the Father. This is the mechanism that we see, that we experience, but none of that changes the overarching reality that we're giving thanks to the Father because He's done all these things. This is God's work. He's the one that rescued us from the domain of darkness. We didn't flick our bick and find our way out autonomously, the bick of faith, oh, I found my way. No. 
He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's a divine act. That's the same divine power that is in reference in John chapter 6 when Jesus recognizes the Father has the right to give a certain people to the Son. And as a result, they will follow him. They will come to him. God-centeredness versus man-centeredness. It's... Can't, can't escape it. Transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In him. So, the centrality of Christ. Here we are in the kingdom of his beloved Son. That's the kingdom of light. That's where the saints are. It's all of God. Now, that's certainly a highly exalted view of who Jesus is. So, he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, the one having preeminence over all of creation. For by him all things created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, the thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things being through him and for him. Yes, there's clearly an anti-proto-gnostic polemic here. Because there seems to be people who are being taught in Colossae, who are being tempted by teachers in Colossae, to get into this sort of this mixture of Jewish and proto-Gnostic, early Gnostic ideas of the worship of angels and the play, uses the pleroma and eons and things that will eventually become very complicated in the fully developed uh, Gnostic myth that we've talked about many times before. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So here is the creator himself. So that's why he is the one kingdom of light, kingdom of light, his kingdom. But he is also, verse 18, and he is also the head of the body. So now you have another aspect of the context. This didn't come up in the hour and 45 minutes I listened to. This didn't come up. Because this is a transitionary statement. He is also head of the body, the church. Now, does the church exist in the created realm? Of course. But is the church a separate category? than all created things, whether in heaven or earth, visible, invisible, principalities of ours, principal. Yes, the church is the work of Christ by grace through his spirit. So we've made a shift. This is the introduction of something new. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the arche. Now, that arche is then connected with prototokos ekton necron. And I think if Sam wasn't so intent on going the direction he's going, maybe in looking at this, this might have caused him to stop and go, well, wait a minute, well, wait a minute. Prototokos here has a different range of meaning than prototokos just a few verses before. Um, Prototokos in verse uh, 15, Prototokos tisaos of all creation does not have the same meaning as Prototokos ekton necron, does it? 
Nope. Different meaning. Different range. So he is the firstborn from the dead. And so there's the protos element of, of prototokos, which is protos and tikto, um, in creation has to do with origin and source. Here, there is, because the resurrection takes place in time, there's a temporal, there's more, more of a temporal aspect than there would be any other. So we have shifted into now a redemptive context, because the church only comes into existence in that context, right? I mean, these are just... There, there, there was more than once that Sam was pressing Matt and saying, um, context, context, you got text, 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 not traditions of men. Okay, I'm just being in the text. Being in the text. If you're going to be in the text, a transition has taken place. And it is... Beginning of verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church, who is also the Arche, the Prototokos Ecton Necron, in order that he might come to have preeminence, first place, protuon, primacy, in all things. Now, that, let, let me, I'm obviously not getting done with this today, but. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 that, that doesn't deal with any of this. So. Um, won't get done with this today. Probably should have realized that when you listen to something for that long while writing and think about it, you're going to end up having too much to say. Uh, primacy in all things is should cause someone to stop and go, huh, I've heard something vaguely familiar to that somewhere else. Yeah, yeah let's, before we get to 120, let's see what the connection here is. The book of Ephesians. I told you it's the parallel, it's the parallel text. Is there anything in Ephesians that might Shed some light on this. Um, yeah. Ephesians 1, 8, In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, that is in Jesus, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ. Do you want the Ephesian letter interpretation of first thing in all things, the summing up of all things in Christ? Why? Because what's the next line in Ephesians 1.10? Things in heaven and things on the earth. What, what you really should do if you want to dig into these texts is, and most Bible programs can do this now, put Ephesians and Colossians in parallel columns, just like we do when we do synoptic studies. Put Matthew, Mark, and Luke in parallel columns. Throw John in when he decides to join the party, which is fairly rare. But put them in parallel columns, and it's like shining a light because you go, oh, okay, here's this part. Here's, uh-huh, uh-huh. Because remember, these are sent out at the same time. The same thought patterns are running through the apostle's mind as he's writing these things. 
but he's using different words to express them. Oh, that's helpful. Yeah. With a view to administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. Oh, inheritance of the saints in light, Colossians 1, Ephesians 1. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, what? Having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. The same apostle who talks about inheritances and summing up all things in Christ, roots it and grounds it in the one reality that I fear Sam Shamoon doesn't believe in anymore. According to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Everything that started in Ephesians chapter 1 has been about the elect of God, chosen by the Father, by his will, his purpose, his intention. And that's what was missing in the whole debate. That's what was missing in the whole debate. That was the presupposition that was being debated without being mentioned. Because, like I said, I'm not going to even try to defend particular redemption apart from the full orb revelation of, well, why did Christ die? Who was Christ? What did the Father and the Son intend to do in his death? These are central. These are what, this is what makes the doctrine of particular redemption. And so, there you have a parallel passage. So when we go back to Colossians chapter 1, then you, you have this idea right there. It was the Father's good pleasure expressed in what? Who's the Father? The one who works all things after the counsel of his will. The one who is summing up all things in Christ. So it's the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Now, obviously, that could be specifically in Colossians a anti-Gnostic polemic because he is utilizing one of the key Gnostic buzzwords, pleroma. Um, that could be why it's there, and the emphasis is Jesus can't just be one of the eons. He can't be an emanation because it's the Father's good pleasure for all the Pleroma, which was all those eons. Remember when we were doing the Wilson stuff? All the eons. Remember there was one eon, Sophia, who contemplates the main God separate from her partner and that creates Yaldabaoth or in some forms... Yahweh, and you know, so that play Roma thing, same term is used here. That's why people see an interplay taking place. So maybe there's some of that there, but the point is, it's the Father's good pleasure that all the play, play Roma dwell in him in Colossians 1.19. So, 
have we seen, are we agreed now in verse 18 and 19, that we have moved away from merely viewing creation as tapanta, and we're now talking about what the Father and the Son do in time in the formation of the ecclesia. So now there is redemptive aspects that have been introduced that you have to now explain, and I never heard Sam do this, why you would backwards read 120 into 16 and 17 without dealing with the differentiation that has taken place in 18 and 19. This is one of the reasons why I believe two things. The primary skill set that a young man looking to go into apologetics should possess is exegesis. Biblical languages, hermeneutics. Should you know church history? You know, I know. You think, you know what I say about that. But the primary skill set should be exegesis. You should know the biblical languages. Do all apologists do it? The vast majority don't. I don't know why. I've, 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 how many times have I complained about this? I have, over and over and over again. So first, primary skill set. Secondly, you need to be in a church where the Word of God, if you're not the one bringing the Word of God, then you need to be in a church where it is being modeled to you by elders, where you learn to handle the Word of God with balance that is not forced upon you by your interaction with false teachers. Did you hear that? You see, the great danger and temptation, I know I have to fight it. The great danger and temptation is to be so focused upon false teaching and how to demonstrate the errors of false teaching and thinking that you need to come up with um, almost any scriptural text, an argument against false teaching, that that becomes your hermeneutic. When you have to preach through all of the Word of God. How many times have I explained that there are all sorts of arguments out there against Mormonism, against Jehovah's Witnesses, against Islam, that I don't use. And I don't use them because I'm a preacher of the Word of God. In other words, I recognize that those arguments require a form of eisegesis or hermeneutics, improper hermeneutics, that I won't be using when I teach through the entirety of the Scripture not just those texts that are apologetically relevant. And you're forced to do that if you have a full-orb ministry. That's why I believe apologetics should be a subset of and under the authority of and in the practice of the church. And once it leaves the church and takes on life unto itself, it will always become imbalanced. It will always become imbalanced. It's just, it's just going to happen. We ain't done because we still haven't gotten to verse 20. And 
We still need to get all the way to Colossians 2.14 because that became one of the central aspects that kept feeding back. Matt was on 2.14, and Sam would keep trying to drag him back and say, it can't mean that because of this back here. So we haven't even gotten there. But you might say, why don't you just keep going? Well, there are a number of you going, just stop already. <laughs> um, to be honest with you, I'll be, I'll, I'll be straight up. I need to be able to blog this, and I want to listen to the Jarlis Wilson debate that starts in 15 minutes. Uh, there's some, I'm, that's going to be really, really interesting. Um, I have criticized Dr. Jarlis on the blog and on the dividing line in years past. So I've got a little something there. I want to hear it. I want to be able to comment on it. And this is only the first program of the week, for crying out loud. So we got time to continue on. And if they could go for three hours and keep repeating the same subject over and over again, then I can go ahead and take a break and pick it up next time around, where I'm not repeating the same subject over and over and over again. I hope that you all have heard that uh, I'm not, I, I appreciated Matt Slick's presentation. Um, I wouldn't have used Sam's notes as my outline, but I appreciated it. I love Matt. Matt, please don't think I'm trying to pick on you. I'm not. Um, and most of you know, I'll just mention this. Sam and I have gone back and forth for years and only a few months ago, thought I thought everything was hunky-dory again. Before COVID hit, I wanted to get together, have lunch, dinner, and something's happened again. And it's because he's promoting stuff that he knows we would like this. And he's always posting stuff from James Snap and stuff, taking shots at me right, left, and center. It's happened for years. And... Um, the man knows, the man knows that I have bent over backwards. I have, there are certain people within 10 feet of me right now think I'm nuts as to how many times I've bent over backwards and I've refused to get angry and I've continued to pray. Um, so call me, a, call me a foolish person. I've tried. Um, but I have been, I think, preeminently fair in what I have said today, even in disagreement and in, I think, refutation. And I will seek to continue to model that in the future as well. So remember, 14 minutes from now, YouTube channel, um, just... If, if you can't find that, if you can't find, put Jaros and Wilson and that doesn't come up, put in Shamoon and, and uh, Matt Slick, then go to that channel and then it'll be there. That's one way around it that I found that was easier to find it. But uh, Douglas Wilson, Kurt Jaros, and Theodicy, uh, live debate coming up here in a little while. I'm looking forward to listening to that. Uh, Lord Willen will be back on Thursday. For another probably fairly long edition of The Dividing Line, thanks for watching. God bless.